And happy Father's Day to all you dads. It makes me think about uh, the day we first brought our firstborn home from the hospital. And uh, my mother-in-law, Carrie's mom, was there with us, and she had agreed to stay with us as we brought home our baby. And that first night, we didn't get a lot of sleep. And the next morning, I got up, and I noticed my mother-in-law packing her bags. And I said, where are you going? <laughs> We're not ready for this. And we weren't, but she left anyway, and uh, somehow we've made it this far. You know, it, it, I, I was right. I wasn't ready. I'm not adequate to this task, and I, I think all of you who are dads can agree. God took a lot of, uh, took a lot of faith to put entrust us with these precious children. It's the hardest job we've, we've ever had, and yet the best job, most important job, too. So, dads, good job. Let's keep it going. Let's... Uh, continue to remember that these children are on loan to us. Uh, so we have an important job to do. Let's do the best we can. Let's entrust them to him. That's your Father's Day sermon. Now let's get into the real message. Matthew chapter 20, <laughs> Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Every year at my wife's birthday, we have this tradition, the last several years at least, we go to a little place down on Westheimer called the Melting Pot. They used to have one in the woodlands. Y'all may be somewhat familiar. It's a fondue place. And so when you go in, the first course is a big pot of melted cheese and you dip you know, bread and vegetables and stuff in that. And the next course is a pot of simmering broth and they have some raw meat there and you, you, uh, you skewer it and you cook it and you eat the meat, various kinds. And then the third course is melted chocolate and you dip all kinds of sweet stuff in there. I'm, I'm a Baptist preacher, so I'm good at dunking things, so it comes naturally. Um, but the first time we went... Uh, both of us were a little confused, my wife and I. She, because as she said, it, it just feels weird to pay money to cook your own food. Um, I, because we were spending about three times as much as we usually do, and I am, uh, you know, what the Greeks would call cheap um, or anybody else. And, and so it was, it was a little bit of a paradox for both of us, and yet both of us were somehow able to overcome that and have a good time. It is amazing to me how melted chocolate can change your convictions on things, you know? And so we do it to this day every year at her birthday. Um, that now that we're going to live further from Westheimer, I guess we'll make that drive anyway. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a tradition we can't get away from. Now, that story has a point, and I'm going to get to it in a moment. But first, let me just say this. The story we're going to read today as we continue in our series, the best news you've ever heard. We've been talking about Jesus' story of grace. The first three weeks, we talked exclusively about the story of the prodigal son. Today, we're going to look at a different parable, but it's a parable about grace. It's also a parable about the kingdom of God. And if you study the Gospels at all, you know that the kingdom of God was Jesus' favorite topic. He talked about it over and over again. And the way the kingdom works is this. God created the world, and He made it perfect. If you remember Genesis 1, on the, seventh, on the sixth day of creation, He looked at all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was no, no flaw in His creation. But then we messed things up. That's the story of humanity. We brought sin into the world, with sin came death, with sin came the curse, with sin came all the problems in our world. And God, rather than walking away, when I do a project and it goes bad, I walk away, okay? That's what I do. But God refused. 
He came to this world on a rescue mission in the form of Jesus Christ. He came to redeem his broken, broken world from top to bottom. And now everywhere that Jesus is Lord, every human being who says Christ is my King, everywhere that Jesus is Lord, that is the Kingdom of God. And it spreads person to person, soul to soul. And in the Kingdom of God, a different set of rules apply. A different set of priorities take precedence. And so it's not enough to just say, okay, I'm going to follow a few commandments and go to church on Sundays. If you really want to enjoy God's Kingdom, if you really want to experience what it means to be part of the Kingdom of God, you have to change the way you think. Just like uh, my wife and I had to change our perspective on restaurants when we went to the melting pot. We had to say, okay, this is different than other experiences. It costs more. And we do different things here. Therefore, we were able to have a good time in order to enjoy the full benefits of being a child of God. You have to learn to think like he does. And that's what this story is about. Let's read starting with verse 1 through verse 16 of Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And again, along with the kingdom of God, that is something else Jesus talked about over and over again. In the kingdom, things are turned upside down. People who are on top in this world or on bottom in the next and vice versa. And that's good news for many of us. Now, the story Jesus told was in response to a question. Peter had asked Jesus, Lord, we've, we've sacrificed everything. We've lost everything for your sake. Now, what, what will there then be for us? And, and it's a very human question Peter asks. But you would expect Jesus to be offended by it, to say, hey, don't question me. You just follow me and, and, and you'll get what you get and you don't throw a fit, right? That's what we tell little kids. But instead, Jesus has this very compassionate answer. He says, Peter, don't worry because anything you lose for me in this world, you'll gain a hundredfold in the next. You will never regret anything you sacrifice for my kingdom. But then in response, he tells this story. And I think it's his way of saying, okay, I've reassured you, but now I want you to see this is not the way you ought to think. You don't follow me for the benefits that accrue. You need, to, you need to lose this thinking in economic terms of, okay, Lord, I do this for you and you do this in return for me. 
And he tells us this story. And, and what I like to do with, with the parables of Jesus sometimes is imagine what they would be like if he told them today. So here's what I think this parable might be like if he was telling it to us this morning. You and I are unemployed, and we've been without jobs for a long time. The unemployment money has run out. The checks have stopped coming. Uh, the savings we had banked in the, in the bank is gone. Uh, we've gone to all our relatives. We've gone to all our friends with money. We're pretty much tapped out. And so early, early one morning, long before dawn, I pick you up and we go to a place where they say you can get work. And we, we're the first ones there. And before anybody else arrives, a guy in a really nice car pulls up and he says, you guys want work? I got a work. I got a job for you. It's $200 a day. It's, it's hard work. It's 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., but 200 bucks. And 200 bucks won't pay all our bills, but that's pretty good money, and you know, that means you and I might not be eating tuna tonight for once, and so we get in the car, and he takes us to this little factory, and he shows us the job. It's a little complicated, but after a while, we catch on, and we're working. We're getting things done. About nine o'clock, another crew comes in. Now, these guys aren't quite as sharp as you and me, so it takes them a little longer to get into the flow, and they get in the way while it's going on, but we keep on working. Again, more come at noon and then another crew at three. And with each successive crew comes in, it seems like they're dumber than the last one. I mean, these guys at three are just dumber than dirt. They just can't get anything right. And, and they're very irritating to us. And finally, he shows up with a crew at five o'clock. Who's still hanging around the labor hall at five o'clock? Well, these losers, that's who, with their shirt tails out and they haven't bathed in who knows when. And I mean, where did he dig these guys up? But we just keep our heads down and, and we keep on with the work because after just an, another hour, the, the horn blows and the day is done. And so the boss lines us up from, from the last ones to show up to the first. And he starts with those slackers that showed up at five and he's handing out checks. And I'm looking at the guy standing at the end of the line and, and he's scratching his, his wiry beard and he's looking at this check and his mouth drops open and he looks at the guy to his right and he says, loud enough for all of us to hear, dude, did you get $200? Now, you and I both know that these knuckleheads are going to blow all that money overnight on beer and weed. We know that. But we don't care. Because what we're doing is we're revising our mental math. We're saying, okay, so it's not 200 a day, it's 200 an hour. We've been working 12 hours, 12 times 200, that's $2,400. So if I hadn't already had my cell phone canceled, I'd be on the phone already to my wife saying, hey, make reservations at Perry's or Taste of Texas or wherever you want to go because we're eating good tonight. And then the boss shows up in front of us and he hands us our check and we look down. We're shocked to see $200. $200 just like those guys down there. And so I, I can't help myself. I, I just step forward and I say, um, excuse me, sir, you know, I don't, I don't think this is exactly right. You, you paid us $200. He says, yeah, that's what you agreed to, right? That's what I told you this morning. I didn't break a promise or anything, did I? And I say, well, no, it's not that. But you see, I've worked, and my buddy, we've worked here all day, 12 hours. We've busted our tails, and, and these idiots came in an hour ago. They didn't even do anything. They were basically just getting in the way, and you're going to pay them the same as us? That's not right. I'm sorry. It just, it just doesn't sit well with me, and that's not the way a good person does business. And he looks at me, and he says, now look, pal, because in the actual parable, when the boss says, I'm not being unkind to you, friend, 
That's a very unfriendly word for friend that, that is used there. It's actually the same word Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas comes up to give him a kiss on the cheek. Friend, do what you have come to do. So the, so the boss says, look, pal, it's my money, and I'll spend it the way I want. And if I want to be insanely generous towards somebody who doesn't deserve it, that's my business. It's no skin off your nose. And by the way, I've got lots of this kind of work. You can keep coming, and I'll keep paying you, and there will be times I'll give you way more than you deserve, but... You know, if you don't like the way I do business, there's the door. Now, this is a memorable story, but I want to stress, it's not a story about who's lost and who's saved. Everybody in this story is saved because everybody in this story gets paid. So this isn't about who goes to heaven and who doesn't. This is Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, this is what it's like in my kingdom. My kingdom runs on the grace principle. And you're going to have to get used to that. You're going to have to adjust to that or you're going to miss it all. You're going to miss the best part of following me. I like verse 15. Verse 15 is really the key verse in the entire story. When he says in, in our English Bibles in the NIV, are you envious because I am generous? In Greek, it literally says, do you have an evil eye because I'm good? Do you have an evil eye? Our English translators thought, well, that sounds a little uh, murky and dark, so we're just going to make it a little more uh, modern-day English. Are you envious? But Jesus literally said, do you have an evil eye? And what does that mean? I think one key to understanding this is to go back to when Jesus used a similar term. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 through 23, right in the middle of the kingdom, or in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus was saying your eyes are the key to the rest of your life. He's not talking about optometry. He's not saying if you don't have 20-20 vision, you can't follow me. It's okay. I see a lot of glasses out there. You're all right. He's talking about perspective. He's talking about the way we look at the world, the way we look at people. And he's saying, if you don't train yourself to see people through my eyes, you're going to miss what I have for you. If, you. if your eyes are not focused on the things that I want them to be focused on, if your eyes are greedy, you'll never be content with all the blessings that I give you. You'll be constantly be wanting more. If your eyes are lustful, you'll always be looking at, at people as objects of desire, uh, and you'll be judging them based on their attractiveness, and you won't have the relationships with people that you should. If your eyes are envious, like these workers in the vineyard, then you'll miss on the opportunity to have these fantastic relationships and to share my love and to see people's lives transformed just by your influence. And let's face it, we all have an evil eye by nature. It's the way we are. You ever thought about how often we compare ourselves to other people favorably? How often we, we say, well, I'm better than him. Well, I, I do better than her. When I'd been preaching for only about a year, I was pastoring this little bitty country church just outside my hometown. It's actually the church I grew up in. Um, there was a, another little church in town, and the pastor of that church was about my age, and we'd gotten to be good friends. We got together about three times a week and played basketball together. Um, and the pastor of the first Baptist church in town, which was much bigger than ours, he was sort of a mentor to both of us. And, and he, Brother Richard was his name. He's still there. And one night he said, hey, you guys, what if, what if I have both of you and your congregations 
to our church on a Sunday night, and I'll let both of you preach. I won't preach at all, and if you both keep your sermons about 10 or 15 minutes, we can do it all in one service, and we'll just have a big, uh, a big joint worship, the three churches. And so, yeah, that sounds good to us. And I was used to preaching, especially on Sunday nights, to, you know, 15, 20 people. And I showed up there that night, and there was about 200. That was fantastic. And I was juiced. And then the, the next week when we got together and, and got together for our regular basketball game, he said, you know, a funny thing happened to me the next day at the grocery store. I was walking through HEB and some guy I don't even know came up to me and said, okay, so now we know that the best preacher in town is Brother Richard there at First Baptist and the second best is that burger kid and, and you're third. And I said to him, man, don't worry about that. Don't, don't let him talk to you that way. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He only heard us preach half a sermon apiece that doesn't really count. And by the way, there's all kinds of other preachers in town. He hadn't heard all of them, has he? And who's he? Who's he to be the, the, the you know, critic of, of sermonizing? He doesn't know what he's talking about, so just, just forget it. Now, that's what I said to my friend. What I thought inside was, I'm number two. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all. I'm coming for Brother Richard next. You better watch out. So that's just my nature. It's how we are. The, the people who do surveys and polls have noticed something. When they ask a question that's intended to evaluate, where, where the people ask, the people who are being polled are asked to evaluate themselves, whether it's how good of a driver you are, how good of a parent you are, how often you go to church, etc. The vast majority of human beings in any subject rate themselves above average. Now, mathematically, that's impossible. And yet we do. And psychologists have a name for this. They call it the, uh, the state of illusory superiority. The state of illusory superiority. By the way, I have an above-average vocabulary. Did you notice? Anyway. Um, so it's this idea that, yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit better. I'm a little bit better than I really am. So what happens when, in our, our desire to always be a little bit better, what happens when we see someone else get the attention that we think we deserve? Kind of a funny story, but a true story, apparently. There's a a teddy bear museum in England, believe it or not, Museum of Teddy Bears. And several years ago, there was a Doberman guard dog in that facility that went berserk and chewed up over a hundred of these valuable teddy bears, including Mabel, the teddy bear that once belonged to Elvis Presley. And it was alone worth $75,000. She just chewed the stuffing out of Mabel. And uh, the, the owners were infuriated and they've lost thousands upon thousands worth of dollars. And they asked the handler what happened. He said, well, I don't know. He said, one second, I'm just stroking Mabel and telling her what a good little bear she is. And the next minute, the dog goes nuts. And I'm thinking, I've got questions for the handler, okay? but I can't answer those. What, what it does show me is when we don't get stroked and someone else does, it does something to us, doesn't it? And we tend to lose it. We tend to do undignified, unchristlike things. I pastored a church once where a man in the congregation had this fantastic testimony of how he came to know Christ as his Savior. 
And he wrote it down and he sent it off to this national radio program, Christian radio program, and, and they dramatized it. That's what they did on this show. They, they hired actors and they made a radio play out of his life story. And so he told us it was going to air on this certain night and we announced it in church and everyone was all excited. And I remember uh, the night before it was going to air, I was, I was talking to one of the guys in the church who was in his class and I said, hey, are you going to listen tomorrow to hear his story? And he said, I've already heard it. And I thought, you're mad because they're dramatizing his story and not yours? That's exactly what it was. And I've seen people get upset because someone gets honored before the church for their years of service in the nursery or as a, as a Bible teacher or as a deacon, and they sit there and say, well, nobody's ever given me a plaque. Look at all I do. And people leave churches over this. I've seen people get angry at God and, and walk away from the faith for a long period of time because somebody else got married and they didn't. And it wasn't even that she liked the guy she married. It's just that, well, how, how come she's married and I'm not? How come he's got all this money and this nice house and, and these kids and this wife who seems to love him and I'm stuck with what I've got and, and I go to church more often than he does and, and I'm a better dad than he is. What's wrong with you, God? That's the way we are. We have this state of illusory superiority. It gives us an evil eye toward others. But even worse than that, even worse than that is when we become like the people Jesus was talking about in this story. See, the, the workers in the vineyard were representative of all the religious folks in his day who were angry at marginal people, un-Christ-like, un un, unreligious, irreligious, and, and immoral people coming into Jesus' family. And it made them angry. How dare you give them the love that only we deserve? How dare you imply that God accepts them when, when surely he only accepts people like us? Let's face it. We have a tendency, if we've been in the church long enough, to decide we and we alone know who belongs here and who doesn't. We make the rules. This is our church. And we're going to make sure that nobody comes in this place who doesn't fit our standards. And if they do come in, they're going to have to adapt to us. We don't adapt to them. They're going to have to like our music. They're going to have to dress like us. They're going to have to do things the way we do it. Show up at our given time. And we have rules in our minds of who's in the club and who's not. And we like to say things like, well, I just hate the sin. I love the sinner. I just hate the sin. You know, when I listen to and talk to people who are outside the faith, it's not love they feel from us. They get that part about hate the sin. They see that clearly. I think it's time for us to work a little harder on that loving the sinner part. And we didn't learn this from Jesus, by the way. Jesus unlike us, was completely without sin. Jesus, unlike us, completely deserved the glory of his Father. And yet, the one person who deserved to look down on others was the one who never did. He's the one who rescued at the risk of his own life an adulteress who was caught in the act and was about to be stoned to death. He's the one who, when he was at a, a nice dinner party in the home of a respectable religious man, it was suddenly party crashed by this uh, immoral woman who came in and, and poured perfume over his head. 
And he praised this woman for her faith and chastised the religious host for his judgmental attitude. He's the one who, when his best friend Peter turned his back on him at his moment of deepest need, the night of the crucifixion, the next time he saw Peter, he didn't even bring it up. He just said, feed my sheep and restored him to leadership. He's the one who, on the day he rose from the grave, the most important event in human history, he waited after Peter and John had gone to the grave. He didn't reveal himself to them. He waited until Mary showed up. Mary Magdalene, crazy Mary, the one who'd had all these demons inside of her that nobody trusted. And he revealed himself to her first. He made her the first eyewitness. You see, we have this tendency to, to want to put people in their place. Jesus wants to take people and elevate them and make them more than they ever dreamed they could be. That's who we follow. That's who we serve. You know, Jesus wasn't the only one who told this story. This is a story you can find in the teachings of other ancient teachers from that time. But the difference between their version and Jesus' version is, in their version of the story, the people who show up at the 11th hour, they get paid the same as the other workers, but only because they outworked them. They worked harder in their one hour on the job than the other guys had in 12 hours. And so they earn their extra pay. And that's the way a lot of us think religion ought to work. I've gotten where I've gotten through hard work. We tend to forget that when Jesus found us, we were in the gutter too. When Jesus found us, we had no hope. When Jesus found us, we had nothing to commend ourselves to him. And it's ironic that religious people join God's family as beggars brought off the street and once we're in the house, we want to change the Salvation Army into a country club with high standards for membership. So what do we do? How do we overcome the evil eye? Because it's bad enough that we miss out on the joy that Christ wants us to have, but we turn others away from the faith. I hope you see the tragedy in that. So what do we do? How do we overcome this evil eye that we naturally tend to have Three things. Number one, first, it, it always starts with repentance. There's no change without repentance. And when I say repentance, I mean specifically. Don't just say, okay, Lord, change the way I look at the world. Help me to see things like you do. No, I mean get specific. Amy Carmichael once said, my love for God is only as strong as my love for the person I love least. So why not name those people before God? Not publicly. I mean before God, privately, he knows how you feel anyway. It doesn't hurt anything for you to say their names to the Lord. Lord, this is the person that I just cannot deal with. This is the person I resent. This is the person I envy. This is the person I can't understand why they have what they have. Lord, this is the person who I, I just look down on. I don't know why. I just look down on them. Lord, this is the group of people who I have a tendency to just have a, have, have a bad attitude towards because of some of the evil things they do. And I know I'm a sinner, Lord, but for some reason I think their sins are worse than mine. Confess that stuff to Him. Repent. Number two, ask Him for the power to change. We cannot do it on our own. We do not possess the power. You do not have the self-discipline to be content with God, what God has given you, to look on others with love. We just don't have it within us. He has the power to change us. And then third, Spend time with Him. 
You spend time in his presence and he, his character is going to rub off on you. So take the time to be in his word daily. Sing praises to him in the, in the privacy of your car or your home. You know, it's all right if you're driving down the road and you're singing a praise song to God and everybody thinks you're nuts. You know, you can just tell them you got a Bluetooth, right? You're okay. Praise God every day. Spend time in his presence and his presence will start to manifest itself in your life. See, only he can teach us this lesson. This is something only he can train us to do. Because we, we all know of stories of, of courageous self-sacrifice, the soldier who dives on top of a grenade and saves everybody in his foxhole, the, the fireman who runs into the burning building just as it's about to collapse, the, the mother who stands between her toddler and, and the kidnapper or the wild animal. We all know stories like that, but Jesus takes that kind of courageous love uh, to infinity because he died for us when we weren't his children and we weren't his friends and we weren't asking for his help. In fact, we were his enemies, according to Romans 5. Jesus, in other words, died for the very people who were crucifying him. And the world doesn't know love like that outside of Jesus. And so we can learn it only from him. He's the only one that can teach us to see things in that way and change our perspective so we can live lives of joy and productivity in this new kingdom. And the only answer is really to, to do what the song says that the guys sang a little earlier. I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I have is yours. Are you willing to pray that to him and mean it?